You are listening to a Bible-based message from River Rock Church in Belle Plaine, Minnesota. We invite you to join us Sundays at 10 a.m. at 330 South Market Street. We also encourage you to visit riverrockchurch.com for more information and resources. Now here is today's encouraging message from our guest speaker. I'm going to ask Mike to come up here. So I sent some of you his, his little list of all his accomplishments. So he's the president of Comma Services, which is Karen Mercy Associates, which he'll tell you about, which is the worldwide relief arm of the Christian and Missionary Alliance, which we are part of. Interestingly enough, he's from Cleveland, Minnesota, which is like 20 miles south of here. And we all know, can anything good come from Cleveland? Well, you did, which is an amazing part of the story you will tell. So he's a missionary in Thailand for seven years, regional director uh, for the Christian and Missionary Alliance in Asia for 15 years, vice president at Crown College for seven years. So if you've gone to Crown College, got a degree from Crown College, took classes at Crown College, just raise your hand for a minute. So Crown people. All right. <clears throat> Are you asleep over there? He's, he raised his he's hand. In the, oh, he did. I didn't see it. All right. So we're proud of it. Actually, yeah, we're proud of a lot of people around here. So anyway, uh, he can answer more questions, but I'm just going to turn it over to him. Here's your remote. Thank you. We're good to go? We're good to go. Well, good morning, everyone. How are you today? Doing okay? Well, you're here, so that's good. So we'll just call that good. We'll get started from there. My name is Mike, and uh, my wife Nancy is with me. Maybe just stand for a second there, Nance. I won't ask you to sing or anything, but... So I lead Comma Services, and we are the relief and development arm of the CMA uh, globally, and almost all of our work is overseas. But with all the recent disasters in the United States and also in the Caribbean, so Cuba, and then the earthquakes down in Mexico, which you may have forgotten about just because of all the other terrible things that have happened, uh, we are involved in the U.S. in disaster response as well. So, um, in fact, the purpose for my trip to Colorado is to address... Uh, our next phase in Puerto Rico. I'll meet with the Puerto Rican leaders there in Colorado. They're, they're coming for other reasons. Um, so it's just a really crazy, crazy time for us uh, in, in what I'm doing. So Nancy, you just saw her a moment ago. We've been married for 37, 38. That's right. I've got to change that, don't I? It's in my notes. So. Every year we, I add one, right? Yeah, okay. <laughs> Uh, we've been married a long time, <laughs> and uh, we have three adult sons, Caleb, Josh, and Daniel. There's another Caleb, Josh, and Daniel here, although you're the husband, not the son, so I've got to get that right. So. Um, and they are with us now. They were in different parts of the world for at different points in their life, whether the, one taught at an international school in Indonesia, uh, one went to Indonesia, helped with a, um, a, a local church there in, uh, in Jakarta with uh, youth ministry. And uh, Caleb was in Kenya, what, for three months, helping build an orphanage. So they all kind of had the bug, you know, to go overseas and do something at one point. So, but they're back here. They're all within nine, ten miles of us right now. So it's very nice. We're all together. Um, so we began our, our ministry in British Columbia uh, many years ago. We went to seminary in Regina, Saskatchewan. Have you been to Regina? Yeah, well, don't. I mean, <laughs> it's... It's like the flattest square kilometer on the face of the earth. It's just southeast of, of Regina. On a clear day, you can see the ocean, actually. It's that flat. So it's cold and it's windy, like, like Wyoming windy. So it's, uh, it's a great place to have a seminary. What else do you do but study? You're not distracted by all the natural beauty or anything. So it was a great experience. And then we went further west and served in the church in British Columbia for a few years. And British Columbia, beautiful province. 
It's in Vancouver is a beautiful city where we were. Uh, we had the privilege of serving in Thailand, and uh, that was very formative for us uh, personally and as well as in ministry. And then uh, the national office of the Christian Mission Alliance was just in Colorado Springs. We were there for 15 years. Got the tattoo. Can't show it to you. We'd all be embarrassed. But um, no, that, was, that, was, that was kind of a lame joke. Nobody caught that one, right? You got that? Okay. We got one back there. Uh, and then at Crown for seven years, and I was in administration. I got to teach a little bit, but uh, mostly it was an administrative role with operations and human resources. Uh, and now with Comma Services. It's just, so this is, a, um, this is one of those jobs where you can go from boredom to uh, downhill, full speed, no brakes, just steer. You know, just insanity. So we're kind of in the downhill, full speed, no brakes, just steer mode right now. So you could pray for us. So it's a really, really busy time. Oh, there's, oh, that's right, I had a picture. So Caleb is uh, right next to Nancy there, and then Daniel, the youngest, and uh, Josh wearing the tux. We were at a wedding. He was in the wedding. Sharp-looking fellow. Let me tell you a little bit about uh, my story uh, in God's shaping of my life. So I was a, a student at, at uh, Mankato State University, so both Nancy and I met there at MSU, and uh, we were involved in the Navigator Student Ministry. That's how we got connected to one another. Um, and I was also attending a little alliance church in St. Peter, Minnesota, which is just down the road from you. And so I got exposed to missions, both through the Navigators and through this church. And so I was encouraged to sign up for a summer program called Alliance Youth Corps. It is now morphed into something else. So I went to Thailand. And there I worked with Kama Services. And I met this, this lady. And, I, and that summer, I remember there was a little nine-year-old girl and th- this is not the gal, but I was treating the, the wound on her foot, which had ulcerated and had eaten away all the skin on the top of her foot, and we're right down to the myelin sheath. That's that shiny little part that covers just your muscles. Because she'd been running from the communists for weeks on end in the jungle to escape uh, from being killed, they were hunting down the Hmong people, uh, any little cut that you had when you're out there in a hot, humid, dirty place, it's going to get infected. And as it gets infected, it grows. And um, so it was really awful. So we would drive out to the river, the Mekong River, and we would go to police stations where the Hmong refugees had come across the Mekong the night before. And I would would treat people like this. I would clean up the wound and put a new dressing on because I had taken advanced first aid that spring semester. So I'm the medic that, that summer. And I have a, Lord gave me a strong stomach. I really don't mind gross things and smells, so... I would help people like this woman here. Now, one thing you should know, that the Mekong River in June, July, is kind of at flood stage. So it's it's about 4,000 feet across. You know, that's just like three-quarters of a mile across. But it's not like a lake. It's it's fairly fast-moving during flood stream. And it, it will carry down a tree, like a big teak tree, that is from where I'm standing to the wall that long. And just huge. And they'll just be floating down because they get ripped out of the riverbank uh, as the water creeps up to the edge of the riverbank. Can you imagine being a mountain person? You've never been to a lake or a stream, well, a stream or a river in your life. You don't know how to swim. You've been running for weeks on end to escape the communists. And you come to this river and you have to cross it. So... They would, the resistance fighters would come across and buy 
those little kitty inner tubes, the really bright colored ones, or they would try to buy boats or something, and they'd go back and forth and try to get 50 to 100 people across the river in the middle of the night to avoid detection at a time. And um, so n- you need to know that not everybody who started the river crossing that night made it. Many drowned. So when I came across these people uh, during the day, you know, they were cold and wet and uh, in trauma. They had lost family members. They were sick. Um, they were hungry. And I didn't know what to think. I mean, when you grow up in Cleveland, Minnesota, you don't exactly see things like this. For one thing, it's a very monocultural place, and now I am the minority, all Asians, all the time, everywhere. I don't understand the language. They spoke Hmong, Lao, and some spoke Thai. I, don't sp- I speak Thai now, but I didn't speak any of that. And it was so emotionally overwhelming. You know, after weeks of treating people like this and hearing their stories, you just begin to empathize with them and their plight. But you also begin to get angry at the injustice that's happening. And you feel so powerless to do anything about it. I mean, they're hunting down families and shooting them with machine guns and letting their bodies just drop right there in the rainforest close to the river. And that's it. And that happened for months and months and months on end as the Hmong people sought to escape Laos after the fall uh, the Vietnam War was coming to an end, and the U.S. forces were pulling out, and all the support for them was no longer there, and so now the communist armies were sweeping away any resistance that was left, and the Hmong were part of that resistance. And I happened to be there at that time when that was happening. And so it was just, just awful. It's really hard to explain if you've not been in the setting, but at, at one point I just said, God, this is... This is way too hard. I can't do this kind of thing. Uh, I'll, I'll serve you in other ways, but I'm not going to be involved in relief and development. It's just too hard on you. So I, I went to do something else. Let me tell you another story. This is a little more current. So this is a story about Amin. Amin is a Syrian boy. This is another boy because I didn't want to put Amin's picture up here. But he, like many children, and about, about half of all the Syrian refugees are children. You don't think about that. You... We think of the, of the young, healthy young males whom we fear, not about little kids like this, but half of them are children. So Kama Services works with a local church about this size in the city of Mafrak, Jordan, and uh, we partner with them as they, they decided they wanted to reach out to the Syrians who were flooding their city. Mafrak is 17 kilometers from the Syrian border. In fact, Nancy and I will be there in a few weeks to visit our staff who are, who are working there. So the pastor of the church, who he would admit at the time, he didn't really like Syrians. And he wasn't really interested in helping them. But God said, I want you to help the Syrians who are coming across the border. And so he acted in obedience, and the church was volunteering its time. And so we got involved, and we had some other major funders. We started buying hundreds and then thousands of mattresses and pillows and blankets and cooking kits you know, a little propane heater, the kind that go in your gas grill. Well, they sell things like that there, and you can kind of screw on a little burner on the top so you can cook food in your very, very, very cold and, and dirty apartment. Um, so we started helping them, and we got involved in that. And one of the families was Amin's family. So let me tell you a little bit about their family. 
So mom and dad and the children all escaped, which is amazing. Usually there's loss of life involved when they're leaving Syria. But they all made it across. So now they go from a normal life where everything is working and they have employment, they're able to feed their kids and their kids are going to school to where they have no jobs and they're totally dependent on other people. And their kids cannot go to school because there is no school. And mom is at home and the dad's trying to get some employment illegally, you know, uh, working on farms or things like that. And unbeknownst uh, to anybody, the the mom just becomes, you know, more and more despondent and she she takes her life. And now Amin is in a class with small children and um, he is... It's kind of an art therapy class where they, they make things and draw pictures and try to tell the story of what happened to them leaving Syria. So one day the teacher explained, we're going to create something called a memory box. And we want you to make this box to represent something you have lost. And so you make the box, you know, out of construction paper and cardboard, and then you tell us the story. And she was explaining to the kids that sometimes our losses are really big and sometimes they're smaller, but it's important that we talk about things that we've lost. So Amin missed the first session or so, but when she explained it to him, he quickly understood, so he got right to work making his box. When his turn came, this is actually his box, he said, This is the bed that my mother died on. I lost my mom. She died on this bed. Now, Amin's dad had remarried very quickly after um, the mother died to a widow who had other kids, and now all these people are one family, right? And Amin's mother is kind of forgotten and moved to the side, and the focus is on today and living and And so the the family's trying to move on, but no one's helping Amin deal with the loss. The teacher explained in a class after that, you know, sometimes a loss is really hard, like, you know, like it's a five, and that's really hard. And sometimes losses are small. They're like a one. And she gave some examples, and the children gave examples, and asked them, so tell us, how hard was the loss? Well, Amin... spoke up quickly. He said, I lost my mom and it was a five. I lost my mom and it was a five and it was hard. I mean, here's this little kid raising his voice in the class. Where else can you express, you know, your loss? And that is the plight of so many Syrians. They have lost their homes. They have lost parents. They've lost aunts and uncles. They've lost children. They've suffered a lot and it's a five and it hurts a lot. What do you do to help people who have lost so much? What's the most compassionate thing you can do for them? What answers do you give to people who face such great loss? You want to be careful. There are no trite answers here. It's a hard question. But it gets asked a lot around the world. And some of you are asking that question from time to time. Jesus dealt with people who had experienced great loss all the time. One of those was a leper who came to him. And you read the story in Mark 1, and I have it here. I'll just read it for you. It says, A leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, falling on his knees before him, saying, If you're willing, you can make me clean. 
Moved with compassion, Jesus stretched out his hand. He touched him and he said, I am willing. Be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was cleansed. The man had lost almost everything because of leprosy. Leprosy was seen as a very contagious disease. It was frightening. It was a skin disease. It was very visible. Um, Because when you had leprosy, you, you move from being part of a family, part of a community, part of a temple, to being outside of all of that. You have to leave your family, your community, and you can never go into the temple again. You live on the fringes of society. You literally live on the fringes of the city. And you're dependent on the goodwill of other people to give you things. You are separated from everyone. Can you imagine? Tomorrow, it's discovered that you have leprosy. You know? And so there's some community just outside of Belle Plaine where all the lepers live. And they're all moved out there. That's not so far-fetched. In Thailand, that's exactly what they did with people who had leprosy. They created communities and made them all move to those communities. They were self-contained. They had a little medical clinic. Everything was there. But you had to leave, and you are separated from everyone. So Jesus saw this man, and he felt compassion for him. Well, he felt compassion. He saw the obvious problem. He had leprosy. But he knew the price of leprosy. This man was totally separated. And moved with compassion, he did the unthinkable thing. He touched the guy. You don't touch lepers. We, um, Nancy and I lived in northeast Thailand uh, for a few years, and one of the things um, that we did was to work with churches who were part of leprous, leper, former leper colonies, leprous colonies, how do you say that? So you could tell the people in the church, most of the adults had leprosy at one point in their life because they'd lost tips of fingers, they had other surgeries to remove wherever they're uh, the skin disease, uh, some simple infection had gone on and they just hadn't noticed it because they had no feeling, you know, in their fingers and their toes. And so things get infected, become gangre- gangrenous, and they have to amputate. So before we started working in these churches, the older missionaries schooled us on this is what leprosy is. You don't get very close to them. You never drink from the same cup. You never eat from the same dish. You don't, 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 don't. And by the way, never take your children close by, you know, because they're more susceptible to the disease, or so they thought. So you can imagine, you know, that's your orientation. It, it breeds a little bit of fear in your heart, right? You know, don't, 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 be careful. So if you think that people's fear about leprosy, or let's translate into modern day, AIDS, is, is just somehow made up, it's very real. We have very real fears. So Jesus did the unthinkable. He reaches out and he touches the guy. He says, I, I, I am willing, be cleansed. And the man was cleansed immediately. I mean, wow, there's something to dance about. That was wonderful. Jesus healed the man. Well, Jesus encountered many people uh, who were in great, great need, and he felt compassion. The word compassion in the New Testament is the word that refers to something you feel in the pit of your stomach, you know, that really powerful emotion where it's so powerful that you can't sit still, you can't not do anything, you have to act. So it's best translated into, I'm going to get up out of my chair and do something in response to the need. And Jesus did. When Jesus saw people in great need and felt compassion, he did quite a variety of things. And the reason was, Jesus' response was geared to the need of the person. 
So it's not like when I feel compassion, I always do, I always give money or I always pray. He did whatever was needed. For example, he healed the sick, he healed two blind men, he fed hungry people, he cast out demons. He told his disciples to pray for a group once, and he taught them. That's quite a wide variety of responses, but all based out of compassion. Compassion's powerful. Compassion moves us. We talk about compassion in a way, you know, like I feel empathy or I feel bad for them. That's not what compassion means in the New Testament. Compassion gets you out of your chair and moving. It's very, very powerful. And we'll leave that there. So what do people who are in pain, who are hungry, who are sick, who are lost, need? How do we respond to those needs? When you're involved in a disaster response, the needs are overwhelming. And they can be so overwhelming that you, they immobilize you. It's like, I can't do a thing. But eventually you get moving and you respond to emergency needs like water, shelter, food, medical care. But that part is over relatively quickly. But the pain of the loss is still there. And now you begin to think, what do I really do to help these people? It's a very nagging question. But Jesus modeled for us what to do. What about your story? So, I mean, I just looked at your, I don't know you at all. Um, I met Chris before at a conference. But, um, you know, connecting people to Christ. I would say I think you have that right. That the most compassionate thing you can do for people is to connect them to Christ. The gospel, the good news, is the most compassionate thing you can do. But the gospel is really full-orbed. It's holistic. The gospel doesn't just address one part of who we are, our spiritual being. It addresses all of who we are. And that's the really good news about the gospel. The gospel is something you see in other people. The gospel is something you experience through their life. The gospel is something you hear and understand, the story about Christ, his life, his death, his resurrection, his victory over sin and death. But the gospel is the most compassionate thing you could ever give to someone who's in great, great need. Well, I want to look forward together and just mention a few things for you. This is pretty remarkable. Keep in mind that, um, you know, I'm, I'm just <laughs> not such a stellar citizen from Cleveland, Minnesota, who came to Christ and God transformed my life, and that's the really good news. Uh, and I've had the privilege of serving Christ in a lot of places that I never would have imagined I would have gone. And I've had the privilege of doing that with Nancy, which has been the best of all worlds. Um, and we have seen a lot of things, and we've experienced a lot of things, and we know a lot of the individuals who are serving these places. And I just want to mention to you that as part of the Christian Missionary Alliance, you're giving to the Great Commission Fund or your support of people, and I think someone mentioned before the Claysons. You know the Clayson family, and their kids are serving in different places. God has taken one small denomination that was birthed uh, out of a ministry to Italian immigrants in the harbors in, uh, in New York City and grown it into a worldwide fellowship of millions of people, thousands and thousands of churches. The impact has been untold. Uh, we're an Acts 1-8 family, inspired by Christ's love, empowered by his spirit. And uh, so just in the U.S., there are 500,000 people worshiping in 2,000 churches, 37 languages in the U.S. alone. 37 languages. That's 
that's a lot of languages. Overseas, 700 workers in 70 nations, millions of people. Um, we're seeing people's lives transformed by the gospel, communities brought back together, Christians often leading the way and responding to big needs that a community might face, whether it's food security or a water problem, or maybe it relates to the education of their children. Like in Vietnam, we've been involved in uh, elementary education with kids. But God has done some powerful things. So you're part of that, and uh, I want to thank you for being a part of that. So sometimes you wonder what impact can we have locally or can we have globally? And both of those are the questions you need to ask, but globally you're part of, of something that is, God is using. And um, we feel like we're just planting seeds at times and then waiting for years, sometimes decades, for them to produce good fruit. But they have produced good fruit because they're the kind of people that stay in it for the long haul. And uh, God has blessed that. Amazing, amazing things. Well, just wanted to pause and say that, remind you of that. Let me go back to Jesus' ministry. When he talked about himself at the beginning of his ministry, he quoted from the Old Testament, he said this, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he's anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He sent me to proclaim release to the captive, recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed and to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And at the end of his ministry, he said to his disciples this, as the Father has sent me, so I am sending you. So let's connect those two. Jesus' ministry now transferred to us. We are his hands and his feet. We are his voice. We are the people that, that he wants in the world to see the love of the Father, to experience the kindness and mercy and grace of God, to know God personally as they see our lives, as they hear the good news from us. So send I you, Jesus said. So the gospel message is the most compassionate thing you can do, and I want to talk about that in three different ways that I've, I've mentioned to you. So my encouragement today is for you to be the gospel, to do the gospel, and to speak the gospel, and to think of them as three strands that are woven together into a rope and all sealed off. And, and that rope, if you take those strands apart, they don't really make sense. It's not very strong. But when you bring all three together, you have a very strong rope, and it can accomplish great things. So our being, our doing, and our speaking are woven together. Be the gospel. Be like Jesus. Being the gospel is, um, is not easy because you're seeking to be like Christ. In the New Testament, and particularly in the epistles in Galatians uh, 5 and Ephesians 4 and 5 and other places, you have... Longer explanations of what it means to live for Christ and what our character should look like. But let me just pull three things out to be holy, to be loving, and to be empowered. So we are called to be holy. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. We are called to be holy. You're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's who you are. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who's called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So we have a high and holy calling, but we live knee-deep in the muck of life. God has called us to a very high place that our character 
would be outstanding and yet not standoffish because we're to be engaged in our communities. We're to be engaged in our families and our extended families. It is a holy calling. We are to be set apart. It's, this is the incongruity of it all. We're to be set apart and yet to be very engaged with people. We're not to be self-righteous about our holiness, but we're not to be standoffish either and to live isolated lives. We, li- we are a people who live in tension. We live in two kingdoms, the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of heaven. And that's not a comfortable place to be, but we were never called to comfort. We were called to live in that place of tension, be holy, be uniquely set apart for Christ. Be loving. Love is so powerful. It tends to become the singular thing that people sing about and talk about, almost to the exclusion of other qualities, which leads to a bit of imbalance theologically, but that's another sermon. But to be loving. Jesus said, a new command I give to you. A new command. So it's something different. Listen up, folks. When he uses the word new, he's trying to get a point. That you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. There are a lot of major religions in the world. Love is not the central theme in any of them, but it is in Christianity. Love is powerful. Because love is so counterintuitive. It goes, you know, we're called to forgive those who offend us. We're called to show kindness to people who will never be kind to us, who will never reciprocate, to invite people into our lives, into our homes, who don't have the capacity and probably would never do that for us. To give to total strangers. We're called to be loving. And, and love is a risk. Love costs. Love is powerful, though, because it speaks of something that's greater than us. And this is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us. We love because he first loved us. So here, here's, the, here's the deal. The degree to which you have personally come to experience the love of God is the degree to which you can then show that same love to other people. So if you find yourself somewhat unloving, a little miserly about that, you need a fresh touch from God to know his love more deeply, more personally. You cannot give what you do not have. God wants to show you his love more richly, that his love can be expressed through you more fully. Be loving and then be empowered. The Christian life is a life that's a high and holy calling. It's to live for other people. And if you attempt to do this in your own strength, you'll be one of the most miserable people on the face of the earth. You can't do this in your own ability. That's why God gave us his Holy Spirit. Jesus told us, I'm going to send uh, the comforter, the parakletos, the one who comes alongside to help when I leave, because you will need him. You cannot live the Christian life apart from me. So Jesus sent his spirit to live in us when we come to faith in him. So knowing Christ means walking in fellowship with the Holy Spirit, the power we need to live out our life. The power to live a holy life, to be loving, comes from the Holy Spirit at work within us. I don't know if, if you have personally ever asked God to fill you with his Holy Spirit, to fill you afresh, if, if that has been experienced at another time in your life. But this is a good daily discipline, not a kind of a one-time event, to ask God to fill you afresh and anew with his Holy Spirit. And to be filled, that's a, a, again a word out of uh, the book of Ephesians in the New Testament, has a dual meaning, and you have to hold the two words together. 
It means to be empowered, but it also means to be controlled. So God wants to have control, but he wants to give you the power to live out what he's asking you to do. I really want to encourage you to, to think on that thought. If, you, if you've never asked God to fill you with the Holy Spirit, to ask him to do that. Because the Christian life is just not livable by our own strength. It, do, it doesn't work. It gets kind of ugly. Well, do the gospel is the next thing I want to mention. We're to be the gospel and do the gospel. Compassion toward those in needs and confronting injustice. There are a lot of people in need. and We're called to demonstrate that locally and across the street, across the world. Um, and to do that to those who are in need. This time of year is when you know, Thanksgiving's coming up and we tend to take offerings for people in great need. There are food shelves that get restocked. Um, there's all kinds of things. The, the Americans are very generous people per capita, give a lot of money to help those in needs, and Christians generally lead the way. Um, <clears throat> the Wall Street Journal just ran an article about the church's response to the devastation of what's happened in Puerto Rico and how they're leading the way. There was a, an article in a major newspaper, and I can't remember which one, about Houston and the hurricane there, again showing how the churches, the Christians were leading the way and responding to the needs. So uh, Christians are very generous people. In the U.S., they, they tend to take the lead in responding to those in needs. So compassion is being shown in these hurricanes and earthquakes and other things. I just read a compelling story, I wish I'd printed it out for you, of these Christians in Cuba that we are coming alongside that are connected with you and me who live in very poor communities, often with dirt floors. And when the hurricane, Hurricane Irma, came through, and it it didn't do much damage in Florida, but it did massive damage in Cuba. So you've got a simple home built with simple materials, and you know what happens when a hurricane comes through? It's just all blown away. So who were the first people to help those in the community? It was the Christians. They took what food they had, and they just started cooking for people, inviting them in. Um, They created, in a sense, community kitchens, and now they're they're working on restoring communities and rebuilding simple homes. And donations from U.S. CMA churches are helping, are going a long way in these simple, basic communities. And it is the believers who are taking the lead and responding. So it's a great story. And uh, if there was something happening in Belle Plaine, I think the churches would rise up and help out people in great need. But there's another aspect to this, and um, that is confronting injustice for those who cannot do so for themselves. There's a lot of awful things that happen in the world, and uh, when I showed you that picture of that little Syrian boy, um, and I told a mean story, there are a lot of refugee children and their families who for no fault of their own, are now either displaced within their country or they've become refugees and gone to another country or they're seeking to come here. And so there are a lot of immigrants and new immigrants. And as a nation, we were struggling with the, with the long season of wars in the Middle East, natural disasters at home, and, and you develop something called compassion fatigue. Have you heard of that? It's like, I am just tired of helping people. I am just weary of, of always being asked to give to this or give to that. And so we, we become fatigued, and it's normal, and it's human. But we also develop something that's also very normal and human, 
that has made it difficult for us to reach out to those, particularly who are new immigrants, and that's called fear. Ever felt it? Fear based on race or religion or certain ideology. I mean, we've read all about ISIS and the atrocities that they've committed and uh, our, our fear of jihadists and people who might come into our country and perpetrate great things against us. And, and those things are not based on some pipe dream, and things like that can happen. It's just that in the past 30 years, of all the immigrants that have gone through the screening process, not one of them has committed a felony. A little shocking, isn't it? So yes, there have been people from other countries who have committed felonies and atrocities, but they didn't come through the State Department and that whole screening process. It's a rather careful process, but we are afraid. And we are afraid because of what has happened. So just look at Minnesota for a second. Um, so 8% of our population are immigrants, uh, 14% nationally. So across, there are other states that have a high percentage of, of immigrants. And when they say immigrants, they're really looking at like two decades. So it's not just the last few years. Uh, we have many from Myanmar and Somalia. You're probably aware that Somalia, because uh, we're you know, mostly an Anglo or Caucasian state, so when you see people from Somalia, they're physically different. Um, not just skin color, but the, the, uh, their, their body shape and other things are just different. Uh, so you notice that. But people from Myanmar or, or Burma, um, you think maybe they're Hmong or they're Vietnamese. No, they're, they're, they're from Myanmar or they're Karen people. Uh, and they are leaving there because of a, a rather oppressive government. So we have a lot from Myanmar. But w- over one-third of Somalias in the United States live in Minnesota. That's an astounding figure. So what will we do in response to that? Let me go back. I want to read Deuteronomy 10 for you. I want you to think on this as I read. Because immigrants have been a reality, or foreigners have been a reality since time immemorial. Every nation has had other nations come into their country due to wars or famines. So what, what we are experiencing is not new to anyone. But God had some really strong things to say. He said this to Israel. What does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Sounds pretty good. Let's go on. For the Lord your God is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality, accepts no bribes. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow and loves the foreigner residing among you, giving them food and clothing. And you are to love those who are foreigners, for you yourselves were foreigners in Egypt. Wow. That's pretty compelling doesn't have a lot of wiggle room in there. You're to love the foreigner, to clothe them, and to feed them. And as a nation, we have a long history of doing that. But we're in a, we're in a season of stinginess. We're in a season of isolation. We're in a season of fear. And Christians of all people need to stand up and say, this is wrong. We are to embrace and to help people like that. We're not to throw caution to the wind or to lessen any of the stringent Uh, processes that the State Department puts people through when they vet them, those will all stay in place 
and they're all well-founded and tested, but we are to embrace the foreigner, regardless of what country they come from or religious background. That is what the church is called to be and do. So loving people and demonstrating the gospel means showing compassion to the foreigner. Calls us to do the same. Well, we are called to speak the gospel. And that's the part that for some of you, you know, um, speaking to other people about your faith is a really hard thing, kind of scary. So do many of you here, listen, I just love telling other people about Jesus out loud, verbally. Any hands go up? You really enjoy talking to people? So it's a couple of hands. So I have my hand up because I'm one of those. But I'm in the minority. We are in the minority. Uh, you know, if you're an extrovert and you really enjoy talking with people and you enjoy engaging them in conversation, you know, great. Speaking the gospel, fun. But for many, not so fun, kind of scary. Well, let me tell you a story about how important it is for you to, to identify that I'm a follower of Christ. Simple thing, just to say I'm, I'm a follower of Jesus. Um, to come up with a phrase that, uh, that people can... can latch on to pretty quickly. So a friend of ours was working among Lao people in the country of Thailand uh, during the, toward the end of the Vietnam War when there were thousands in camps. Like, there were 90,000 over in this camp and 100,000. I mean, they're small, they're cities, refugee camps. They're like prisons, really, because once you get in, you don't walk out because there are armed guards all around the perimeter of those refugee camps. But he was working in there with his wife and his kids, and they were um, teaching English. She was a nurse. She started a program for opium addicts. They also started a course for um, refugees who had been approved to go to a third country. So life skills in terms of, uh, you know, cooking or just thinking, thinking ahead to help them adjust to living here in the United States. So they were working in there, and they learned Lao. And they were fluent in Laos. And then the laws changed that they could actually go into Laos. But prior to that, U.S. citizens couldn't go back into Laos. So they're in Laos. And they are, you know, getting set up. They have a home and their kids are there with them. And they're, they're like everyone else. You've got to go to the market every day and get fresh food because you've got a refrigerator, you know, about this big. So you don't really have a, a lot of refrigeration. So you basically go every day and buy your food. So he's in the market, and he's buying food, and there's people around him just chattering away in Lao about him, thinking, we're sure he doesn't speak a word of Lao because, you know, he's, he's Caucasian, and they never met a white person who could speak Lao, so they're pretty sure they couldn't speak. So they're just talking away, and it's so fun to be in a public place and people are talking about you. And we've had that experience, and uh, it's really hard not to start laughing. Um, but anyhow, so he is keeping a straight face, and he's just listening. And one of the women says, hey, you see that foreigner over there? I said, yeah. I, says, I wonder what he's doing here. Because it's pretty odd to have a foreigner in Laos at that time, you know, in the early 80s. And the other woman said, you know, I, I, I don't know. And the first woman said, well, I heard that he and his group are here doing a lot of good deeds. You know, a lot of kind of community development projects and helping the poor. That's, that's really a good thing. The other woman said, yeah, it really is. And then the woman's kind of quizzically says, I wonder why they do all those good deeds. And the first woman said, I don't know, maybe he's really a good Buddhist. Wow. You see, you can be an outstanding individual. I mean, really, very Christ-like. And you can do a lot of good things for people. 
But if you don't explain your motivation and why you do them, they will answer that why question from their own cultural context. In Laos, it was really good Buddhist. In Minnesota, well, they're just a nice person. They're just a good person. But really, apart from Christ, do you know any really good people down deep? If you don't answer the question, they will answer it for you. We must tell people who we are. We're followers of Christ. And as the opportunity opens through relationship and experience with them, we tell them more of how Christ has changed our life, what it means to be forgiven, what it means to be empowered, what it means to know God, and that they too can know him and be forgiven. The gospel is something you must speak. People won't figure it out. They really won't. I mean, they see things about you that cause them to wonder, I really wonder why they do that. You know, why were they forgiving in that situation? Why were they gracious when I would have punched the guy or I would have said something unkind? But you didn't. Great opportunity for you to answer the why question. Why did you do that? Because I'm a follower of Christ. Well, I'd like you to think on your own situation and ask yourself this. Do people know I'm a believer? The people you work with? People in your neighborhood? Even your extended family? Do they know that you're a follower of Christ? So we could do a little test. This week we'll go around and we'll just go survey the people. We won't do that. But, but really, do they know? Because if they don't, you're the only one that can tell them, that can answer the question. So I really want to lay before you kind of a baby step challenge, and that is just identify more clearly, more often, with being a follower of Christ. If you take that step, there'll be a second step, a door that will open for you, because people will now connect you, your behavior with Christ, begin to ask questions. At first, there are sometimes these un- rather common but silly religious questions, which are only a smokescreen for what's really going on in their life. Maybe one of the, the most powerful things you could do for a person in need, if they're not a follower of Jesus yet, is just to say when they tell you what's going bad in their life, you know, I'm really sorry about that. Could I pray for you? What do you think we do with refugees who are from a Muslim background who really have no interest in Christianity because Christianity is an oppressive religion to them? They are angry about Christians. But we say to them, I'm a follower of Isa al-Masih, Jesus the Messiah. And we hear the terrible stories and we say, we're so sorry for your loss. Could we pray for you? And what do they say? Yes. Almost every time. Identify with Christ. Offer some meaningful, compassionate act. Offer to pray for people. And let the doors open from there. We are to be the gospel. We are to do the gospel. And we are to speak the gospel. And we keep those together in a way that is, has a really powerful impact on people. As part of the Alliance family, God's called us to live out knowing Christ in a daily way. And I don't know what that means for you. I'm going to have my own challenges. Uh, And we were challenged in that song, Oceans, you know, what's the step of faith that God's called you to? Uh, God's always laying before us something new. And that, it's in the point of the new and the challenge is where we meet him more fully where we experience him in a more meaningful, intimate way, where God takes the very little bit that we have and multiplies it, 
whether that's in talking to someone who doesn't know Christ or showing kindness to people in need or helping a brother or sister in Christ. So I'm going to ask you to bow your head with me. I'm going to pray for you that the Holy Spirit who lives within you would help you identify that place where you need to step out uh, and walk in obedience and where God wants to meet you and do some things that otherwise you're, you're not going to experience if you don't step out in faith. So he's going to ask you to take the first step. So let's pray together to see what that is. Father, this day I rejoice that you are at work in each of us, that the work that you began in us you will perfect, and that today that you're asking each of us in some way to take a step of obedience in a particular direction. And I pray that you give us sensitivity and openness to what that step is. And give us the courage, particularly if it's scary, to take that step. And Lord, I just want to rejoice and thank you in advance that you're going to meet us, you're going to help us, you will bless us, you will enable us, and that you will cause good fruit to come from that act of obedience that will bring joy to your heart and joy to ours when we look back and see what you did. So to that end, Lord, we ask you to use us, to fill us, renew us this day. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. You've been listening to a message from River Rock Church. River Rock Church exists to help people of all ages connect to Christ and live well lives. W stands for worshiping, E for encouraging, L for learning, and L for loving. God wants you to be well. We meet 10 a.m. Sundays at Chatfield Elementary School on 330 South Market Street in Belle Plaine, Minnesota. Visit riverrockchurch.com for our latest news and to access resources to help you and the people you care about live well lives.